It's time to get it, and you know how we get it. Americano! The podcast about all things business and personal growth with your host, Eric Vonheim. Today, I would like to welcome Susan Kenny to the show. Susan, how are you doing? I'm good. good. I'm really good. You're really good, and it's beautiful outside. Yes, it's a beautiful spring day. I remember just was a week or two ago, we were just raining and oh gosh, now freezing. all of a sudden it's summertime. Yeah, I was at my son's football game yesterday afternoon and um, it was, it, you know, 80 degrees outside, which normally that wouldn't be a big deal. But yeah. the intensity of the sun was so bizarre. Everybody in the stands was saying, why is it so hot? Yeah. Like it just like it was we just were coming down. It was crazy. <laughs> well, hopefully you didn't catch on fire. Uh, no, we did. Thankfully, no, you did. Yes, it. and I had sunscreen, so go go. Excellent, excellent. So today, um, for our listeners out there, um, I want to bring Susan on the show. I had met Susan years ago when she was involved with the Ronald McDonald House, which is a not-for-profit organization, which I'm sure you're going to learn a lot more about today. And Susan, when I met you at that time, what really stood out to me is that you had a, just a desire to help other people. You had a passion for helping people. And I remember you'd given me a tour of the facility there and you had spoken to me about how you guys actually help families and, and how you connect them and allow them to be close and the relationship with the hospital and all these great things. And so you really just stood out to me as somebody that cared for others. And um, and certainly I have a passion for, for helping others as well. And so I, I just wanted to bring you on the show to talk to you about that. Thank you. That journey. Happy to be here. Yeah. And something that you that also really stood out to me that you had on your LinkedIn profile, and I just want to read this quote to our users, was this quote that said the following, we are all just walking each other home by uh, Ram Das. And I'll read that one more time. We are all just walking each other home. You know, sometimes when you see quotes out there, you read them and then you move on. But when I read that, I legitimately stopped in my tracks and read it several times and allowed that just to sink in. What does that quote mean to you? It means everything to me. I really truly believe that I am on this earth, that we're on all on this earth um, to just help each other, to be there for each other. and. And while I, I've come to the realization uh, a long time ago, I can only control myself. I can't be upset if other people aren't going to help other people. I can right. only do what I can do. And while I'm here, I'm going to see how I can help. Yeah, just do your part, right? There's a lot of truth to what you just said right there. Oftentimes I'm in conversation with people in my you know personal, professional life or even some of the students I teach. And one of the things I always share with them is that we can't control what others say and do. We can only control our response. Yeah. Right. Unfortunately, there are sometimes disappointments when we feel as if others should reciprocate in a certain way, um, maybe mimic our behaviors or do things that we think they ought to. But the reality is it's, you know, it's, it's free choice, free will, right? Well, you said something interesting. I was having a conversation with a girlfriend this morning. Um, she was frustrated about something. And I said, um, you realize the reason why you're so frustrated with this person you're interacting with is because you're looking in a mirror. Yes. And she's giving back to you what you're putting out there. Mm-hmm. So we go back full circle to the quote that if we are all just here helping each other, taking yeah. care of each other, that's just going to make the world so much better. If we're projecting that we're angry or frustrated, then that person's going to be angry and frustrated back at us. Yeah. And so while... 
again, you can only control yourself. Mm -hmm. But when you control yourself and your reactions and um, your impulses or or, um, just even a giggle, like that yeah. just changes everything. Everything. Everything, right? Everything. So Yeah, you, you strike me as somebody that beyond just caring for others, you you take life, you know, it's fairly light. Kind of have fun with it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Is so, that a fair statement? Yeah. I was as a younger uh person and I don't know, maybe still You're still very still young, young, Susan. <laughs> younger, She's very young for our <laughs> listeners out there. Thank you. Uh I was always the wild one. Uh, you know, I'm the youngest of three. I grew up in a small town. My father was a police officer. I was raised Catholic. It's like all these strikes, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, she's the wild one. Um, she's yeah. the fun one. And so, yeah, I've always just wanted to grab as much as I could, yeah. as much gusto as I could, you know, out of life. And as I've gotten older and more mature about it, yeah. um, I realized that that's all we can do. I mean, yeah. why be sad or upset or why would I stew in my car for an hour because I got cut off on the 405 freeway that's serving absolutely no one? Then I'm not a good mom when I get home, right? Yeah. You know, they're like, what's your problem? What's going in on? In fact, my 14 year old yesterday, yeah. God love him. He was sent here to be my teacher. He really, really was because he gives it to me so good yeah and i know that he's doing it because i need to learn something so he said the other day or yesterday i was like oh okay get your football bag packed okay we got to get in the car we've got to do this look why aren't you moving faster and he said breathe mom <laughs> just breathe and i looked at him and yeah. starting to get like oh, and i went you know what honey you're right yeah, i'm gonna take a deep breath Thank you very much for saying that. It's like that. your yogi instructor. Yeah, teaching you how to breathe, which is really important. You know, breath is, I mean, we could talk for a long time on breath. That's super powerful for sure. uh, on many levels. You mentioned something about your childhood. And before we kind of get into where you're at today and, and the organization that you represent and, and those in between, let's talk a little bit about your childhood. Because I often believe that a big part of who we've become as adults and, you know, the careers that we've chosen and, and kind of how we've turned out a big part of it is stemmed from our childhood. So what did your childhood look like? And what type of parents did you grow up with and siblings? Yeah, I uh, mentioned I'm the youngest of three, older brother, older sister. Um, I think that I was, uh, I'll say it in a nice way, a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was the one that um, maybe wasn't planned, yeah. uh, but um, I, uh, I have always, um, known that I am very blessed. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, I grew up in Arizona. Um, we lived and uh, my father was a police officer. Okay. And so we lived in all these um, random places throughout the state when he was a highway patrolman. So um, uh, we lived in state housing on the side of the freeway, actually. So we would live in these trailers. So I always okay. say, well, I, I lived in a trailer. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we, uh, uh, moved to Phoenix when I, I don't know, maybe four, five years old, okay. a little younger. Anyway, um, my mother was always very involved in the community. She was a volunteer. She was very active in her church. Um, she was a, a mentor, a big sister, her big brother's big sister. She would read in the schools. Um, and so I always thought that I grew up emulating her. Okay. But really, my father being a police officer had a huge impact on me. 
And I, I never really gave him credit, um, you know, because he was uh, a physical disciplinarian like most parents were in the 60s, 70s um, when I grew up. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but when I really look back at it, I, I knew what was right and wrong because of him. And I knew what protecting somebody meant. And yeah. I knew what helping somebody meant, you know? And so I got it from both of them. And I quite honestly, dad, sorry, you never really got much credit for that, but you really did um, have a huge, um, you know, impact on me. Yeah. Sounds like you had some, you, you were exposed at a very young age to some great examples. You know, sometimes I feel like when we're younger and if we are exposed to some parents that are a little bit more heavy handed or strict and in certain ways, you don't always appreciate it when you're young. Yeah. You don't always fully understand the gravity of it. But when you, I do believe when you get older and if you do reflect on things, you can at least appreciate the reasons why maybe there was some of that more strictness in certain areas, right? Well, so 100%. And I, um, we haven't brought this up yet, but I now work for CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates of Orange County, and we provide um, mentor advocates um, with foster youth. We match them up one-on-one relationships. It didn't really um, dawn on me until I started working for CASA that, let me me go back. I I, I was not abused. Mm -hmm. It was the norm. It was the social norm of how you discipline your children um, during that time. Yeah. And, um, but I never wanted for anything, you know, like I, we, I, I knew I was loved. I had two parents in my house. I, we had food on the table. We, you know, I, I got new school clothes every year. My, my sister and I, uh, my brother was older than us. So he, yeah. he had his own car, but my sister and I shared a car. Like I always had it, had everything that I needed and also had things I wanted, you know, but I don't look back at my life and say, oh God, my, I shouldn't have gotten a spanking, you know? Um, I look back on my life saying that shaped me Mm -hmm. and that made me who I am. And I was able to make these choices to become the woman that I am today. Right. Um, whereas the kids that were supporting at CASA, um, they've been removed from their houses because of um, abuse, neglect, or abandonment. Like they, real physical abuse. Yes, but also they didn't have that loving environment at home. Mm-hmm. I had a loving environment. I knew somebody cared about me. Yeah. I knew somebody had my back. I always knew that if something went wrong, I could go home and get help from my parents. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, it ideally now at, at me as a parent now i don't my children we, it's not a physical discipline when they don't get hit or you know spanked or sure. whatever whatever you want to call it but i wouldn't change my life yeah and i'm so grateful um for everything that happened in my past because it made me the woman that i yeah. am today it brought you to where you're at today yeah it is fascinating you know in some different styles different approaches um people respond differently to different circumstances uh the family dynamics are very very complex right and you know like the old adage goes you know you you can't pick your family you can only pick your friends yeah (laughs) right yeah and some of us are um you know blessed with these wonderful families and great family structures Others of us, you know, maybe uh, get a different set of cards, right? Yeah. A different structure. And we got to figure out how to best navigate that or um, on worst case scenario, like, you know, some of the 
the you know children that you guys deal with and we will learn about in the show uh, it's really sad and it's yeah. heartbreaking what they you know they didn't ask for that type of structure of but yet they're born into that and um but yeah but before we get to casa because i definitely want to talk about casa let's go back in time a little bit so you know you you become this young adult you know and um, you go off to college and school and trying to pick a career, what did it look like for you? Because you were exposed to the some sort of care bear environment, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you had law enforcement, you had a mom um, that was doing a lot of charity and, and giving back to the church in different ways. What did it look like for you? What were you drawn to? Were you thinking, I want to get into to business? I want to do volunteer work right out the gate. What was your p- particular path? Uh, again, I, this is not a slight against my parents because I think I've already established that I feel very blessed um, for all that I've had and all that they've given me, but they didn't necessarily push me. They didn't push me um, to do anything or or Mm -hmm. to, they weren't over my shoulder saying like, uh, you know, is your homework done? Or I I just knew that I needed to do all of that. And so I got fairly decent grades. Um, I was accepted into all of the schools in Arizona that I applied to, um, and I chose to go to the University of Arizona. And I think that I was um, a bit of a dreamer, actually, and I um, went with the intention uh, to the University of Arizona to become an astronomer. Astronomer? Because the, and there was no rhyme or reason to it, other than the fact that the skies in Prescott, Arizona are amazing and gorgeous and the stars and it's beautiful there. it's beautiful. And it's higher elevation right mile high city and i just loved the stars and yeah. i thought oh well that makes perfect sense i don't really have a desire to do anything else in life like let's go to the university of arizona to be an astronomer so I get down there and I find out that there's a lot of math and science involved in becoming a summer. <laughs> Hold on a second. I have to count. I know. Wait, what? I can't just look in a telescope and yeah. look at stars and have a job? Exactly. But anyway, so that wasn't in the cards yeah. because that really wasn't the path that I was on. And so then I thought, well, gosh, I'll be a teacher. You know, yeah. I like kids and this will be great. And and then I found out you had to have a certain grade point average to get accepted into the College of Education. And let's just say I wasn't really excelling. Yeah. It was my first time away from home. I was having fun. Yeah, um, that's a fun college. And so I settled on communication. Because okay. you could get into the communications department without a GPA, like a certain GPA. Right. So I was lazy. I'm 100% lazy. Yeah. I will admit that wholeheartedly. I just always knew that I was, oh, also, gosh, this is full disclosure here. I also loved sports. Obviously, okay. big sports school, but loved sports even before I got there. And um, I then wanted to be a sportscaster. And I really? thought, hey, like one this would be super fun. Sort of commentating the game? Yeah, commentating the game or somehow being involved in the team. I was dating a baseball player. Um, he said, um, and he played in the pros, so he would only be at school like half the year. So okay. anyway, he knew the owner of um, the local um, Tucson Toros, who also owned a um, basketball uh, CBA, uh, probably past your time or before your time, but it was called CBA. Okay. Um, and it was in Illinois, Rockford, Illinois. Okay. And so he set me up with the owner and we're talking on the phone and he said, yeah, I can get you a job. You'll have to start out at the very, um, 
Yeah, entry level. level. Yeah, I also had an internship at a radio station, so I kind of had some experience. And um, he said, very entry level. So you'll move to Rockford, Illinois, and most of the kids um, that start with us have to get second jobs. And again, I thought to myself, why would I move away from my entire like life to a place I don't even know where it is, have to have two jobs, and lazy again? Super yeah. <laughs> lazy. I mean, it, uh, now that I'm saying this out yeah. loud, clearly I'm very lazy. And so, well, as a youth. Yeah. But my parents never said, this is what you've got to do or anything like that. They just said, get a job, get an education and get a job. Right. So I got a job out of um, school, said, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and I got started working for Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Oh, Enterprise really? Rent-A-Car, yep. That my, was your first that job? Was my very first job out of college. And, um, we worked our butts off. Oh yeah. So all of a sudden I'm not lazy anymore. <laughs> sure, yeah, totally different. <laughs> totally different. I am renting cars, I'm washing cars, I'm repoing cars. Really? Yes. You I had to am. repo cars? We had to repo oh, cars. Oh my goodness. We I, had, uh, how, no, you're too nice to repo cars. <laughs> I wanna know how this transaction goes down. <laughs> Excuse me. No, we had keys made and then we'd sneak in and drive uh, away with them, so. Interesting. So, yeah, so it was like a sales job, I thought. Okay, well, sales is what you want to, uh, I guess, is what you, only thing you're good at. You know, yeah. like, or your communication skills, or you're, you're friendly, so you can do sales. Mm -hmm. So, I didn't love it. I mean, yeah. great, great organ company, great management program. They train you in every aspect of it. I met a ton of people, all like-minded, super fun, and we mm -hmm. had a great time, but I didn't. Wasn't I didn't. your calling. It wasn't my calling. So what point did you get that calling? Because you've had an extensive career in the world of, you know, not, not for profit, right? Yeah. Nonprofit. What was that entry point for you? 9-11. Really? Yeah. So I uh, worked for Enterprise and I was a recruiter for an, a company, um, which was kind of helping people find jobs, which I really enjoyed doing that too. But I was volunteering during my 20s, you know, running the marathons and the, the um, Make-A-Wish and those types of things. And so I was doing it on the, si on the side or, you know, yeah. through, my, through my free time. But when 9-11 happened, I just really thought I can't keep doing something that I don't love. Yeah. Like, and it really was, I have to do something to help. And so <laughs> I actually considered joining the military Really? I did. I went and I took the test um, at the Navy. My husband uh, at the time was all for it. Like, if this is what you want to do, I'll support you. We didn't have kids yet. And yeah, yeah, went and I took the test. Uh, they said I scored the highest, you know, that anybody had ever scored. And I don't know if they were just giving me a load of, yeah. the, you know, <laughs> BS because they wanted me to uh, join. But um, then I found out how much money I would make. And I said, no, <laughs> I mean, because they don't, we don't pay our military yeah, enough for them to risk their lives to save us. Oh, goodness gracious. They yeah. don't pay enough. But anyway, so I said, I got to figure out another way to, uh, to help. I said, I think I, I, I think I want to get involved in nonprofit. And a recruiter reached out uh, and I said, I don't want another sales job. I, I just want to get involved in nonprofit and okay. and uh, she said, oh, I have a job at the Muscular Dystrophy Association. I said, okay, and I interviewed. It was the only job I had ever interviewed for once I made this decision and I was with MDA for 11 years. And was that in Arizona? No, that was here. So I once I graduated from U of A, I moved here. Okay. I moved here, yeah. Okay, so you, you got into this world here. Yeah. In SoCal. Yeah. So what was the primary focus of that particular organization? Like, what was your role? What were you doing? Because this would have been your first, you know, 
um, entry, your, your first place to yeah. step into this world, right? Yeah. So fundraising, I was a fundraiser. Uh, I was the district director, so it was the manager of the team, but yeah. it was a fundraising position. And so in my mind, it was um, sales. Sales. Yeah. Yeah. Or is it, you know, I, this is a good, good time to talk about this. I think, oh, I don't know what your your thought is. I'd like to get your opinion. But do you think that sometimes there's this negative connotation associated with, with selling? You know, this idea that sales, it's, it has to be aggressive. Um, yeah, there is. There is, right? <laughs> I, I often like to think about it you know, rather than selling, you're really just storytelling. Well, especially with nonprofit space, you right? have to. Because with sales, yes, I felt I'm super competitive. Okay. I've gotten better. I'm not as competitive. I was super competitive when I started working at MDA, where to me it was sales. And I was, you know, like I would high five everybody if they got a donation or yeah. it was just like, the, and it was fun. But when I now as a, you know, more mature seasoned fundraising professional step back and say, it's not sales, it's relationship building. Okay. Because I don't, in a, a nonprofit space, the nonprofit space, you don't have a, hey, here's a portfolio I can sell you. And then you take this away and you write all your notes inside your portfolio, right? Or yeah. a pen or a copier. Like there's nothing that I'm giving you from the nonprofit space other than a good feeling. Okay. Right? So I say, Eric, please get involved with CASA. Right. And you say, it doesn't really speak to me. Like I, there's so many other nonprofits that I could support. I don't really think that CASA is for me. Mm -hmm. But if I tell you an incredible story about why you should, you know, get to working with CASA and you get to introduce, I introduce you to an advocate who has an even more amazing story. Mm -hmm. You're right. It comes back to the storytelling. How are we making people feel? Right. That's the only thing that I have to offer in the nonprofit world is that I'm going to make you feel good about what you've done. What you're help. doing. Yeah. yeah. Or a tax benefit. You know, some people that's yeah. what they, you know, but. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a, but that's, the, that's fair. The only thing that I can sell you. Right. Is, is that the, emotional value. You're selling emotion. Yeah. And that you're making yeah. a difference in the world. Yeah, absolutely. So you did this uh, with this organization. Now, you said, how long did you stay there for? I was with uh, the Muscular Dystrophy Association for 11 years. 11 years. And then you, where did you go from there? I went to the Child Abuse Prevention Center. And I was okay. only there for a year. And when I was with MDA, I was inundated with um, relationships with the families. I got okay. to meet the kids. I got to meet the adults we served. I got to meet their families. And um, we had a summer camp. So I, I was always, always, always around the families the families that yeah. we served. And I went to the child abuse prevention center and, um, I didn't meet one family, um, uh, because of the legalities or of the structure, uh, of, the it. structure of it. Okay. Yeah. So I knew that it was an incredible cause that I was raising money for, but I was not getting anything personal from it. My heartstrings were not being pulled because I wasn't hearing any stories or I wasn't being a part of any stories, yeah. you know, the relationships that had at MDA, I still have these relationships. Today. I, yeah, I attended more funerals professionally than I have personally because of the relationships that I created at MDA when we lost wow. families, you know, to muscle disease. Mm -hmm. um, I was proud and honored to be there. Don't get me yeah, wrong, but yeah. but that 
had a hold of my heart, you know, and then I moved to an organization where there was nothing. I I, I don't mean to sound cold. Yeah, it it just just, lacked that emotional connection for you. And that's okay. That's okay. Because, you know, what I'm hearing is that as much as you're, you know, sharing your storytelling and sharing these experiences with others in, in an effort to, you know, get people involved, get people to help, you know, with their time or financially, you also need to be fed too. Of course. You need those same connections and stories, right? Absolutely. And it, 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 it's significant. Yeah. I can definitely relate. Absolutely. Because I, I, I've, I've been doing this a long time and I have seen how it can just um, break a person professionally. Like mm-hmm. they, you know, it's just too hard for them. And in fact, people used to say to me a lot, you know, how can you work for an organization between MDA and Ronald McDonald House? How can you work for an organization with sick kids? Like, how do you deal with that? Right. Day in and day out, day you're in, just seeing out. people in pain. Exactly. Especially children. Exactly. And I, quite honestly, would say, is something wrong with me? Because I love this job. I love going there every single day. I love being a part of these families' lives and supporting them and helping them. And yes, it is very sad when somebody passes, but it, it would inspire me to work harder you okay. know, you had a, you had a reason. I did. You had and, a purpose. And I have to go, but let's go back to the original conversation about us growing up. Yeah. I never, thank goodness. I never knew a sick child when I was growing up. I never knew that, um, pain that those families were going through. And so it wasn't something that I walked into with a history to go, this is going to be so hard. Yeah. Because I know, you know what I mean? Like, I, I know what these families are going through. I didn't know what they were going through. So I kind of felt like that made me a, the perfect person for this job because I care. Mm-hmm. But I I didn't come with a preconceived notion of how difficult it would be. I right. only saw it as or see it as I'm helping and You're I'm helping. doing something to help. Yeah. And, you know, you need people in that space um, that have big hearts that can also be tactical, rational, strategic and find solutions to help the people that are in need. Right. I mean, if somebody, for example, and this is just my opinion, but if somebody around you, let's say your child gets hurt at a young age and they fall down, they hurt. It, it doesn't do them any good. If you're down on the floor crying and upset yeah. either, you, you know, it's like yeah. you need to help them and you need to just switch gears real quick and pull it together and get them to the hospital or do what you need to do to find them some help. Right. So I can definitely appreciate that. Yeah. Well, don't get me wrong. Motherhood. Yeah. I'd see blood with the boys and I'd be like, "Ah!" (laughs) (laughs) so it's good that I could separate the professional and the personal. I like it. I like it. So, so let's talk about the Ronald McDonald house, right? Because that's where I met you. And as I mentioned, that organization has been around for a number of years. Yeah number of years and can you share with the the listeners a little bit about what ronald mcdonald house does yeah beautiful beautiful organization still very um a huge advocate supporter of theirs um what they do is they provide a home for families who have critically ill or injured children that are receiving treatment at the hospital so if uh you want to so yeah my boys get hurt and okay. they're in the hospital I'm going to want to be by their side. I'm not going to want to leave them, right? I'm right. going to want to be there holding their hands. I want to be there talking to the doctors. And then I live 
an hour away or 30 minutes away from the hospital um, and I can't be there. I've got to go home to my other children or I've got to go home to, I don't know. Just deal with life. Just deal with life. Exactly. That pulls you away from the true care that that child needs. So the Ronald McDonald house is a house that is very close to the children's hospital right around the corners and here in Orange County, it's literally around the corner from chalk that families can walk and get something to eat, take a shower, go to bed, and then be right back at the hospital. Close enough to that if the doctor calls your cell phone and says, I need you to get over here, you're there in five minutes because you're just so close. So, um, and a lot of families will travel to get the best possible care, right? Like your child gets diagnosed with cancer Mm -hmm. and you live in a city that doesn't have a a well-known hospital. Some rural area. Exactly. Exactly. Then you're going to do whatever you can to heal your child. And that could even be cross country, you oh, know, yeah. like you could. Some one off, uh, you know, particular disease you or something. find some out anomaly. a doctor who's mm-hmm. a specialist who's in Philadelphia, of course you're gonna pick up and you're gonna go. So that's what the Ronald McDonald House does is provide a home yeah. um, free of charge to the families where they can have food. Food is beautiful volunteers that come in and make breakfast and dinner. Yeah, yeah. I can attest to that. I remember when you were giving me the tour of the space, that was a beautiful kitchen. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the facilities over there by Chalk are absolutely gorgeous. It's a yeah, beautiful, and I, were you guys, correct me if I'm wrong, were you guys expanding at that time? Oh yeah, for sure, yes. So the capital campaign um, is a $12 million campaign, and so far they've raised 10 million. They've got two more million to go, so if anybody wants to write a $2 million check, call the Ronald <laughs> McDonald House. Um, but yeah, right now they can only house 20 families, okay. um, and it will be expanding to, 40, to be able to serve 44 families. Because as the hospital grows mm-hmm. and adds more specialties, obviously more people are coming. We would um, uh, put families up at local hotels when the house was full I see. At, uh, at the house's expense. At, um, but that that doesn't suit. I mean, it, it's a means to an end because they're still close to the right. hospital. But you want that community. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to be around other parents who have a child that's sick and you guys yeah. can talk comfort about each it other and, and lift each, each other up. Exactly. So hopefully they'll yeah. break ground here in the next, I don't know. I mean, COVID obviously slowed them down a little bit with being able to um, break ground. But I think that that's scheduled here and then yeah. hopefully by 2022. It's, it's so powerful when you just think about... Um, you know, when somebody's in the hospital, you, you do not want them alone. No. You want a friend or family member. I mean, it is everything. If somebody, you know, in my immediate uh, family or somebody I love or care, I, I mean, they show up in the hospital, you better believe if I can get over there, I'm getting over there. Yeah. Because just the act of showing up, just them seeing you, it does so much to, to you know, the mental health, the physical health. It's, it's very, very powerful. Well, and you just took the next step to my new job with um, Court Appointed Special Advocates because, you know, you showing up in that hospital just lifts that person up, right? Yes. The mental health, physical health, all of that. When you pair an advocate with a foster youth, that one person who is there for them through thick and thin, know they can count on them, it's going to lift this child up, right? It's huge. It's huge. This so how did you make the transition from you know Ronald McDonald House over to Casa it because was, I remember it was hard. It but was hard because I remember running into you. I believe we were at some particular event um, in Orange County, if I'm not mistaken, and um, just catching up with you. And you said uh, I asked you about Ronald. McDonald. You said no, I'm with Casa, and I was like, Oh, Casa. 
Well, yeah, and it was hard. Well, it was hard when I left MDA too. Uh, it um, uh, you become emotionally invested. Just yeah. what I've already said. The families, the people, the staff. You know, um, Tyler. Do you know Tyler Mounts? Have you ever met Tyler? He works at Stark. I know Tyler. Yeah, everybody knows Tyler. Yeah, I know. Of, I mean, I, I've had coffee with him. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about marketing. Yeah, yeah, he's with Stark, uh, and his his um, the owner of Stark, uh, Todd, is on our board, and I've known um, Tyler through Todd. So I met I met Charles Antes, who introduced me to Todd, who introduced me to Tyler, and so yeah, Orange <laughs> County is really it's world. like this big. Absolutely. So anyway, um, Tyler is an advocate, both he and his wife. That's right. And so he said, uh, and Tyler and I have just always stayed in touch, and he said, you know, I, I'm working over or volunteering with CASA now, and their CEO was great, Reagan. I, I, I adore both of you. I think you just need to meet each other. And I'm always open to meeting um, nonprofit peers all the time because right. I know we can support each other in some way, regardless mm -hmm. of whether it's healthcare or foster care or, or just the arts or anything. Yeah, just humankind, just getting to know somebody else. Absolutely. And yeah. so um, he set us up for coffee and I just fell in love with this woman. I mean, yeah. she is, she's mom, uh, which is great. It, it, oddly enough, my entire career in nonprofit I have never had a female supervisor who was a parent or who had young children. So the only supervisor I can think of off the top of my head right now, she had adult children. Okay. So she had kind of forgotten what it was like to be a young mom. And so I have, it's, it's so weird to think about this now that I'm putting yeah. two and two together. but. Reagan being a mother of young children, um, or my kids aren't really young, but you know, young enough that she got it. She got the working mom thing. Whereas I had other supervisors who were like, what do you, what do you mean you're leaving for a soccer what game? What do you mean you or, have kids? What, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, what do you mean you can't stay? Hold this, on, you have to feed them? This fundraising event <laughs> until one o'clock in the morning. And you know, yeah. so I loved that about her. She's also just super, super smart. She is uh, an attorney by trade. So she, oh. she has her uh, master's in social work and then she became an attorney. When she was actually getting her master's, she volunteered at the CASA in New York. So she wow. knew about our organization. Then she became a family uh, law attorney. Um, she became, joined our board while she was practicing okay. and then became a staff member um, as our chief program officer and then was promoted to our um, CEO. And so she and I just hit it off. We had a lot of personal um, similarities with mm -hmm. family and kids and moms and that sort of thing. And um, she said, you know, I may, I may have this job opportunity available. I'm going on vacation. I'll be gone for a couple of weeks. Why don't you think about it? Let me know. And I left there thinking, I really like this woman, but I'm so confused about what CASA does. What they do. It's so complicated. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, I was like, oh, I'm not. She's, I'll call her back and tell her I'm not interested because I love Ronald McDonald House. And right. I think like three weeks had gone by and I was like, oh shoot, I need to call this woman back. <laughs> and so I called her again with every intention of saying, I'm not interested and got on the phone with her again and just was like, God, I like her. Yeah. And You're just so, a you had chemistry yeah, and energy and exactly. shared Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And just an understanding of me where I was, a single mom, two kids, you know, I looked at her as somebody who would really support me in this right. role. And, um, and that's really important. I mean, gosh, moms have the most, the hardest jobs 
ever. You know, you're, you're wor- especially you're working, raising kids, and having to balance everything in between. Um, the guilt you put on yourself. Oh my gosh, I, I was raised I, Catholic, so the guilt is even harder. Yeah, the most difficult, and yet probably the most rewarding job in the world. Well, I have two rock star kids. My boys are the best. I am so blessed. And like I said, um, they're both teachers, you know, Carter more so um, than Hayden, but um, Hayden does, he teaches me too. But, but so I, yeah, I, I said, you know what, I will interview. And then I met the team and then I got to really understand what CASA does. And it was hard to leave Ronald McDonald House. Um, but I kind of felt like, you know, I I owe it to myself, you know, to, to try something new. Yeah. Because, again, I, I was with MDA for 11 years, and that was like a divorce kind of when I left there because there was a lot of sort of MDA, super, talk about old organization, been around forever and ever and ever, yeah. and didn't um, – wonderful mission, still doing wonderful work, but didn't change to be relevant – when we needed to um we were jerry's kids forever and ever and ever and ever and everybody would then go that's who's right jerry and who's jerry's kids and what do you <laughs> what do you do and and it just we, we didn't be- change with the times we became irrelevant yeah. and so then it was harder and harder and, and yep. then we were supporting orphan diseases which a lot of people what's duchenne muscular dystrophy or what's als i mean everybody knows now because of the als challenge but right. at the time it was hard enough because these were orphan diseases. So I left that organization only because I, I just wanted to make sure that my family was going to be okay. Just because, you know, there was just administrative change after administrative change. after. It was time. It was time. And so Ronald McDonald house, right in the middle of the capital campaign too, I was like, Oh God, I'm such a jerk. Why am I doing this? But I felt good because I was very instrumental in getting lots of gifts. Yeah. Getting that going and some very significant gifts for the campaign. And, and again, I'm still very close with Katie Rucker and Charles Antis, who are the co-chairs. And I happy to continue to say, Hey, go support that organization. And so it was time. And so, and so you interview with the board of CASA Mm -hmm. and what was that position? It was it the position that you're in today. Yeah. Chief advancement officer. Tell us what the chief advancement officer does. It's another fundraising position. That's okay. really what it is. So whenever I've always done this my whole career, and I, I've been thinking about why titles, while they're cool, I've always been, I guess, in, embarrassed about them. Okay. So, because I don't, I, it may, I don't, again, upbringing, bringing, maybe this is where it's coming from, but whenever anybody would say, well, what do you do? I'd say I'm a fundraiser. And they said, oh, but then if I was with somebody that maybe is on my team or something, right. they're like, she's not just a fundraiser. She's, she's our, a super fundraiser. She's our regional director. <laughs> yeah. She's our national director. Yeah. You know, and it's like. I understand. It, I'm a fundraiser. So, but when Reagan and I were talking and she's like, well, why would you make a change? And I said, I think I'm ready to be a chief, you know? Yeah. Like, so I guess I do like saying after all these years that I'm a chief advancement officer. In fact, right. <laughs> In fact, I was telling you about the Fab France Five when we went on our trip for our 50th. Um, I had just gotten the job. Okay. And I said, I would like everybody to call me chief on this <laughs> trip, please. <laughs> so, you got to have fun in life. Yeah. But you anyway, I, it's a fundraising position. So yeah. I'm responsible um, working with foundations, with okay. major gifts, with um, – I have a grant writer on my team. Um, I have uh, – uh, advancement coordinator. Um, we have 
special events that we do. Um, our chief communication officer, Matthew, who is amazing, amazing yeah. guy, my peer, um, uh, he and his, uh, we have a special events manager. They lead those events. And then um, we work together for the, um, you know, sort of uh Building those donors up from being attenders, attending uh, event attendees to being long-term CASA donors. So CASA donors. Now let's talk about CASA a little bit more. Initially, when I had asked you what CASA was about, um, and I, I think at the time I said, "Is it is it kind of like Big Brothers Big Sisters?" Because I had some connection and familiarity with them, and I'd done some work with them in the past, and still have some connections over there as well. And what I had learned from you is it, it was kind of like, yes, but yeah. <laughs> on steroids, like, like a lot of like a power in yeah. these, in these lives and power in a good way. Like yeah. these can be like an advocate in, in, in the eyes of the court and mm-hmm. the legal system. Yeah. So maybe you can share with our listeners a little bit more about that special designation relationship that a CASA advocate would have. Yeah. Our name itself is an acronym, um, court appointed special advocates. CASA lends itself for a lot of confusion with people. So they hear that we work with foster youth. They see that our name is CASA. They assume we're a a home, a foster home. The name is what it is. Um, It started in um, the state of Washington and a judge uh, said, Judge Sukup said, I cannot possibly know how to support these kids um, the best way that we can without somebody helping me because there's 3,450 foster youth in Orange County alone. So to us, I know it's a very high number. One more time. 3,450. Foster youth in yeah. Orange County And alone. it grew by 350 through the, uh, the uh, pandemic. So yeah, the amount of children coming into the system is just insane um, and sad and Yeah. Yeah. So, so what we do um, by this judge starting our organization, we are a relation, a liaison to the courts, and we recruit, train, and supervise volunteers who then become advocates and mentors for a foster youth. Here in Orange County, we all have the same mission, but throughout the country, there's close to a thousand CASAs throughout the United States. Um, we can, each of us can sort of tweak the way that we do our work. We all have the same mission, but here in Orange County, we have made a commitment. Our board has made a commitment to do one-on-one matching. Okay. So I am a different mom to Carter, me and Carter one-on-one than I am to Hayden and Carter because I'm distracted by what's going on. So I, we have we realize that, and mm-hmm. we realize that if you put one mentor with one child, they're going to get the full attention of that mentor. Got so um, even if they're siblings, well, that other sibling will have another CASA. Okay. So they get that one-on-one attention, although those CASAs bring their kids together, you know, so they can have time together. We've made a commitment for this one-on-one match. So... These people are trained. They have to go through 30 hours of training. Um, this is not your everyday volunteer job. Um, it's not just showing up when you want, want to show up. You are making a two-year, minimum two-year commitment to be in this child's life. Mm-hmm. So you are trained. You are vetted. We interview. Uh, 
you know, everybody and your brother. Background checks. Background checks. Yeah. We interview family members. We want to make sure that you are doing this for the right reason and that you are going to be consistent quality role model in this kid's life. Mm-hmm. And so foster youth um, are in the system by no fault of their own. Sometimes people get confused if, you know, you've seen a movie and they're like, oh, these bad kids, you know, they were arrested and so now they're foster youth, you know. Right. But kids, and I, that, I think that negative connotation does exist it out does. there. It does. And that's not fair because these kids were removed from their homes by no fault of their own. They were either abused, neglected, or abandoned. And some of these cases are not necessarily because they were, uh, um, I mean, sorry, we, we are referred the most, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a detrimental, but the, the, the court, most critical situations. The most cri- thank you. The most critical situations are the ones that are referred to us. Okay. So we're not working with all 3,450. 3, okay. Some of these kids will have a family member in their life that they can just go live with grandma and grandpa or aunt and uncle or something like that. So they don't necessarily need a, a you know, a, uh, an advocate. Where did the referrals come from? From the courts. Wow. Yeah. So well, this actually, comes right from the court. It does. Well, actually, anybody can refer somebody to us. It could be a teacher. Like they know that this is a foster youth and they say, I think that they could really use somebody. They can call our hotline or, you know, our, our 800 number and say, I want to do a self-referral. The kids can actually refer themselves. Really? Yeah. But it does come from social serv- their social worker and, the, and or the judge is okay. where we get the majority of these kids. So and you're getting cases, referrals sent over to you that are, are very complex. Very complex. In fact, well, what I started to say is that, yes, some of these kids obviously abused um, or neglected, but we have two sisters in the system from last year. Both of their parents died of COVID within months, a month of each other. And so it's just happenstance, right? It's nothing that anybody did. These parents certainly didn't want to leave their kids behind, but they both got sick and they died. And, and they don't have any family And they family don't have any take family care take care of them right now involved in their lives. Wow. So anyway, it's, it's, it's very, very complex. Complex stuff. Very complex. And some of these kids are, well, let me tell you a story. So a brother and sister were in the system. Um, they wanted to try to keep them together. Um, so it placed in a foster home together. But the brother, because they're also different sexes, sometimes that's more difficult to keep you know them together. But so brother and sister, the brother had been diagnosed as having autism. And so that made it even more complicated to keep them together because foster families are like, well, we, we don't know if we can handle a child sure. on the spectrum. Um, we'll take the sister, but we, we, the courts really wanted to keep them together. And obviously the siblings really wanted to be together and keep them together. So they were assigned CASAs, both of them. The boy um, was assigned a CASA who was a previous teacher. And she... Um, Upon meeting him, knowing uh, extensive years of knowing kids on the spectrum, said, this kid isn't on the spectrum. There's something else going on here. Okay. And found out that he had suffered so much trauma that he was, you know, behaving in a way of a child on the spectrum, not communicating or, or, you know, sensitive to, you know, touch or anything along those lines. And she advocated with 
the social worker through therapy to get him re-diagnosed and to get him the therapy that he needed. So then they were be able they were placed into a foster home together, and mm-hmm. then they were ultimately adopted together. That's so cool. So that's what these advocates do. Because otherwise, if that classification would have remained, oh yeah, he that may have, have been, kept them apart for sure, and he would have been put in the system and and and. I'm going to say something very dramatic, only because for effect, but let me explain. These kids are ignored, and it's not because there's people who don't want to help them. It's just there's so many of them, and social workers can only do so much. So much. And so we come in to be that um, partner mm-hmm. with the social workers. So social workers have 40 cases. How can they possibly can get they possibly to know 40 kids? Yeah. But if they have an advocate, CASA, who comes to the courtroom with them when that hearing comes and that CASA says, okay, this is, or well, they write a report. Every interaction that they have with the child, they um, have to go into our system and write a report of what they did and what happened and suggestions, recommendations. And so now the social worker can look at the case file. Yeah. The, the advocate is there at the hearing the judge usually will say, judges tell us all the time, the very first report that I read at every single hearing is the CASA's report. And they can make recommendations. And then they say, is there a CASA here? And more often than not, we always ask them to, to come. But if for some reason they can't, then our staff Your team will our, show yeah, up on their behalf. Our team will show up on behalf. But is there a CASA in the room? Yes. What are your recommendations? How's the child doing? They know them personally. Yeah. So that's how we're supporting them. That so. is wonderful. It is because there's so many kids. And you're so making a kids. huge difference yeah. in their lives. This is real stuff. Well, and let me go a little bit deeper. So the story that I just shared with you, we have so many of those, tons and tons and tons of those. But we also are, we have true impact. And it's hard for us to like tell you, Eric, 90% of the kids that have a CASA um, are going to get jobs because when a child leaves the system, we oftentimes just lose track of them because okay. we're not working with them and because of you know privacy laws or anything like that. And if that adult now has decided, I don't want anything to do with that anymore, we can't really prove what we did matters. Right. We know it matters, but we there's nothing that You can't concrete. quantitate, it's, yeah, the so, quantitative side. So it's bigger than that. So when um, a child is, well, let me go back. 80% of the prison populations were foster youth at one point. One in five people who are homeless were a foster youth at one time. There's another stat that's staggering about um, unemployment that, you know, not working were a foster youth at one time. So in the state of California, if you're a foster youth, the average foster youth graduates from 50% graduate from high school. You pair them with a CASA that jumps to 92%. So that's one of the stats that we know for sure that we can hang on to because they're still in this or that we can prove because you know, we still have access to them. But if you think about that, that 42% now that now has an education, now had somebody, that one person who cared about them, they're more likely to go on to college. They're more likely to stay out of jail. They're more likely to get a job and being, you know, productive in society. So those people then who are like, eh, I don't really care about foster youth, but I sure care about my taxes. You are now going to have less taxes that you're paying because there's not the prison population shrinking you're not having to worry about the homeless situation you're not paying extra unemployment benefits 
So what we're doing is this humongous, not only for humanity, but really for our economics, yeah, economics, society, everything. So we're looking at ways of how yeah. we can prove these numbers by, you know, data mining um, and trying to really dig deep. Yeah, and be able to sort of highlight the, the success, yeah. amplify that, right? You know, there's one other thing that comes to mind. You're also allowing some of these people to break the cycle. Absolutely. And let Absolutely. me let me explain that because this is something I talk extensively with my students about. So I teach at St. Anna College. So I've been teaching, you know, entrepreneurship, business, and marketing there for over 10 years. And... You know, sometimes my students don't always grow up in the best of environments. We have conversations about that, right? And I get to learn some things about them. They get to learn about my background and, and so on. I always encourage my students that I said, you know, we can't pick our family. We can pick our friends. And if, we, if we're dealt a certain hand in life, we can just look to change that hand over time if we make some different choices and decisions. And I said, the good news about experiencing something bad in life is that you can identify what's good now. Yeah. If you don't have any hardship in life or experiences, maybe some you know poor relationships or maybe you're treated a certain way, how are you going to recognize the good relationships, right? I said, you have a unique opportunity to break the cycle and that's powerful, sure. right? So I would imagine that um, a lot of these children that come out of CASA and programs like it, you know, they're now getting exposed to people that truly care and care about them unselfishly yeah. And they're not even their own blood. Well, they're there because they want to be, not because they have to be. Exactly. And that is powerful, mm -hmm. right? And that, you know, I'd imagine that some of those people come from that and they, they form these great bonds with their CASA. And I've heard some of these stories too, and I've seen um, at one of the events I attended um, at, with CASA was, uh, I remember it was a lady and a girl. And she was the, the CASA for the girl. And she was older and she was sharing her story. And these two looked like they had just such a great bond and connection for with sure. each other. Yeah, the relationships so are And she'll go on to now raise her children fundamentally different mm -hmm. than how she was raised. Absolutely. It starts at home. It starts in the household. Well, so and that's powerful. a perfect segue is that we need volunteers. We need that is like the most important thing to be able to, to meet the needs and serve more kids. We need volunteers. Yeah. We need people who... Um, can make the commitment to your minimum commitment to be in this child's life. I mean, not saying that the, the case would necessarily go for two years because maybe they're reunified with their family. And so you're only involved, you know, in the particular case for six months or so. Okay. Um, or it could even go longer. We've got, you know, the average um, is four years. Four that years. Somebody's involved. So maybe two to four years if they're actually going to be a CASA. And then um, what other ways can people donate? Uh, funds, obviously, um, we are always, um, through the pandemic, unfortunately had to cancel special events. So, um, okay. you know, that's, was our, one of our biggest, um, fundraising. Yeah, exactly. Is that so, coming back online here soon? Well, um, we are having a pickleball tournament, um, which, uh, is outside, so it's safe. Um, but, um, people are, it's sold out for players like that. Really? Because people were so Pickleball's all the rage now. I, it is. I know nothing about it, but I see these paddles. It's, I say it is <laughs> in between ping pong and tennis. Okay. <laughs> smaller paddles, smaller courts. Yeah. But, but anyway, so that is brand new to us, which we hadn't done before. Um, and then we will be having our celebration uh, event, which will look a lot different. It had to go virtual last year, but it has been a black and white ball where we've been in a ballroom and 
Again, we're not sure we feel comfortable doing that this year, so it's going to be a small-scale event, okay. um, but an outdoor. But an outdoor? Outdoor event. Are there opportunities for people to donate their time outside of actually being a CASA, but contributing in other ways to the organization? Absolutely. So um, we have a back-to-school, used to be, well, it will go back to it, but it was a picnic. Last year was a drive through experience. Um, this year it's going to be another drive through experience, but the kids will actually be able to come with their CASAs. But we donate um, or we give each kid a backpack full of school supplies. Okay. And so the picnic lended itself for lent itself to be able to have more volunteers and more sort of fun going on. This year's drive-through experience, we're trying to still make it fun, okay. but we'll need volunteers to help us with, um, like, if they want to hand out, handing out things, stuffing yeah. backpacks, that sort of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, so, yeah. How can uh, listeners get a hold of you? I mean, uh, I'm going to provide your contact details perfect, or yeah. tag you, Absolutely. you know, in the post. But how? Yeah. how? Susan, uh, uh, or it's S Kenny K E N N Y at casa o c c a s a o c dot org, or you can call me at seven one four six one nine five one four one. Um, or I'm on LinkedIn. I like to connect, yes, so uh, feel true. free to connect with me and. Um, yeah, we just, we need people to help um, these kids. They need to see somebody who cares about them, makes them feel special, and, you know, gives them the idea that they can break the cycle, just like you said, you know? It doesn't yeah. have to be the way that it was. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much, Susan. I really appreciate fun. your time. Um, thank you. And beyond that, I really appreciate the good heart and nature that you have. You're doing work that's meaningful, that's impactful. You know, not every career provides that. I'm lucky. That type of that type of reward, if you will, right? And, and you're doing it. You're making a big difference in these people's lives. And so you. I applaud you for that. So thank, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so excited to see you. It's like a person. Yeah. You're human a human beings. Person. We're alive. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Have a beautiful day. You too.